real life superpowers in life you have to learn how to do this uh, if you're a salaried employee at any time it could go like that if you work for a venture capital funded company all of a sudden they're going to bring in a new leadership team goodbye i mean there's no guarantees in life there's no guarantees in business you always have to be operating that way yes i'm an optimist but like i said there's also this paranoid realist side that teaches me you always need to be out there pivoting. You always need to be thinking, where's your next customer? Where's your next revenue? How is this going to look 12 months from now? You, you, you got to be real. Hey, everyone. Welcome. Today, we interview Neil Schaefer. He's a recognized leader and university educator who helps businesses maximize their social media presence through his social media agency, strategy consulting, keynote speaking, and award-winning books. He's been named the Forbes Top 50 Social Media Power Influencer two years in a row. His portfolio includes Fortune 50 Enterprises, Grammy Award-winning musicians, and leading brands. Real Life Superpowers So, Neil, welcome to Real Life Superpowers. Thank you very much. It's an honor to be here. And where are you located these days? I am, well, we're all at home. So <laughs> I am in Irvine, California, which is in Orange County in between LA and San Diego. And how are you holding up with these, uh, with these crazy days? Well, it's already been three months in, so surviving. But you know what? I, I, it's funny because I am someone who, I'm a solopreneur who works from home. So uh, it's actually in many ways because I don't have the travel that I used to have. It's quite efficient, so no complaints. Nice. And like, so are you dealing with any like interesting projects these days? Uh, yeah. You know, it's funny um, because I've been picking up business even during the pandemic. So, and I think a lot of us in digital marketing, we're finding that, you know, this whole digital transformation in terms of sales and marketing was delayed. And now companies are really trying to play catch up because it's the only way that you can meet your, your customer. So it's been, it's been a boon. And yeah, there's, there's always interesting things going on. I tend to work with a lot of startups. So I'm, I'm currently working with one startup and we literally started from scratch and over the past three, four months, helping them make traction, what have you. So it's been good. Yeah. So like these times are actually times that you can really shine and sort of show people uh, where you're already at and how to lead the way to that place. Yeah, I mean, I look at it more, not from my perspective, but from business perspective, there's always opportunity and um, no one wants to take advantage of crises, but there are opportunities for businesses who really know how to serve their communities, who innovate uh, and, and who get out there and engage. So um, I'm just you know, honored to be able to work with those companies. What do you think is, gonna, like, is the biggest uh, change now? Like, wh what will happen on like, how, how you, like, is in the business side after the corona? Not on the health side, but on the business side, what's going to be the biggest change in your sense? I just think that um, the shift to digital will continue. And I look at even, it's very interesting, you know, I have a high school and a junior high school, uh, you know, children. And we, the public school system here did a survey, you know, of the parents. How many of you want to keep your kids in traditional school? How many, how many of you would like to do 100% online? How many of you would like to do blended? And while the number one was we prefer traditional school, that was only 42%. So a majority of parents wanted, and this goes from elementary all to high school, they wanted their kids to have more time at home, more time online, more, more blended. 
experience. And I think that we're going to see this with businesses, um, you know, a lot more work from home. We've, we've had it before, but I don't think we're going to have it to the extent we have now. You're not going to have to go into an office every day. Uh, it, it's going to be very, very different. I think it's going to help make businesses more efficient, but they're also going to have to work hard on sort of uh, virtual engagement, for lack of a better word, of, of keeping employees uh, keeping customers, keeping everyone around them engaged when, when you're not going to be able to meet them. You probably won't meet them as often in a physical space. Because if you think about it, why does everyone need to be in the same physical space in order to work, right? It's sort of a 20th century concept that, I mean, I'm a people person. I would much rather have this interview in person than over video. But I do believe that, especially for smaller companies, there's a cost that, that is associated with having everybody together in a room. And when you take out that cost, you look at the efficiency, you look at the benefits of people don't have to, you know, drive to work an hour each way or, or, or take the train, whatever it is. I, I think it's just, it's going to be a very, very different tomorrow. Uh, I'm excited about it. I think it's, it's actually going to help our efficiency as a global economy, but it will have its unique challenges. But then, then what would be the incentive to be offline? Like you, what you're saying is if we're shopping online and we're working online, right? So think about, you know, all the real estate, what is that going to look like? Exactly. It's, it, it's going to be very different. And I was, you know, speaking specifically sort of like a, a, of office buildings and office leases, uh, the WeWorks of the world, or just, you know, corporations that want to have every employee at their office. I think it, you know, it, it may lead to a lack in demand for those areas. As far as personal real estate, I think that's a whole other issue. But with personal real estate, it, it may be, well, you know, if we don't have to necessarily work in a certain location, then we can live anywhere we want. Uh, you know, I actually started my career in Japan. And when I moved back to the United States, you know, my boss said, basically, as long as you're within an hour of LAX or San Francisco you know, international airport, so I could fly easily back to Asia, you can live anywhere you want. Now, this was a startup from Ottawa, uh, Canada. So I wasn't going to be working at headquarters. But this is the type of thing where it might actually free up uh, populations to move to more ideal locations, maybe to places where real estate is cheaper, or maybe to places more in the countryside instead of an urban area. So I do think over time, uh, assuming that this pandemic has the impact that I believe it will, I do believe we're going to see some of that. I don't know to what extent, uh, but I think over the next 12 to 24 months, we're going to see more of that in action. I wonder, like, because you're talking about the parents who are a majority, but still, like, the rest didn't say that it's important to, you know, to go back to school. And I'm sort of thinking, are we maybe sort of fixed in our mindset, thinking that the children of today need to acquire social skills in a physical classroom? Because I'm thinking, like, you know, for our generations, like, across the board, we've already been at the physical space. This is a new world to us. Even those of us who have been working remotely for years, like you, for example, you still, you know, you still meet people uh, on several natural occasions. And children growing up who will not go to school at a physical space and, you know, sort of go to school remotely, they're not going to acquire those skills. And maybe they don't need, need those skills because maybe the world is going to digital completely. And this is what they need to know. Yeah, that's a really, really good point. I'm a big fan of, I think half the reason you go to school is for those social skills, even within business, within a company, you need to have social skills, right? Um, but it, it is interesting in that, you know, some people call Gen Z, the younger generation, uh, sort of antisocial. They're sort of in their own world. They'll be together at a park, yet everyone will be on their phones on Instagram or Snapchat or TikTok. So it, it, it is really interesting. I mean, how we define socializing it is different. 
And maybe that is not as important as we move into a more AI-dominated society over the next decade or two. Maybe it's not as important as we thought. I don't know. I, I still believe it is. But, um, you know, just over the past three to six months, we've just seen so much significant change in, in society in many different areas. Uh, you know, all bets are off the table right now. Yeah. And so you were saying you started your career in Japan? I did. I grew up in an area of the United States, a suburb of Los Angeles, where we had a lot of Asian Americans. So when I was in, you know, classes, a lot of math and science classes, most if not, you know, pretty much all of my classmates were Asian American in high school. So this led me on a journey as to why, you know, I'd go to birthday parties where I was the only Caucasian and, and you know, this is way back when in high school, you know, I just wanted to find what that connection was with people that, that grew up with very, very different backgrounds than I did. Uh, what was that connection with me? So when I went into university, I decided I was going to study uh, one of those Asian languages. I ended up studying Chinese. I ended up doing my junior abroad in Beijing. Uh, and this was at the time when the Japanese economy was booming and my roommate in Beijing was Japanese. And I made a lot of Japanese friends there. So that's where I sort of shifted gears. My senior year in university, I started to learn Japanese. And then I found an opportunity to work at a Japanese company that was headquartered in Kyoto, of all places, the, uh, the ancient capital of Japan. Uh, and the rest is history. I ended up, you know, work starting at that company, then moving to a, uh, a Canadian startup, then uh, to an American company, uh, ended up learning how to play the drums there, drumming for a band. We recorded two CDs, uh, ended up learning, you know, how to ski, how to snowboard, how to scuba dive, all these fun things. Met my beautiful wife. We had a, a, a baby girl. And when she was, that, that was the time when it's like, you know what, maybe it's time to move to the United States and, and raise the kids in the U.S. So, so that's why I was there for 15 years, but it was just an awesome experience. And The Canadian startup was in Japan? Yeah. So the first nine years, I worked for a Japanese semiconductor manufacturer. After the first two years where I started out actually more in accounting finance, I wanted to move more into sales marketing. So they slowly shifted me into a position. I started, I, I was in Singapore for six months on a stint and working in the overseas sales department. And after four years, I really put my foot in the ground and said, look, China is starting to open up and our company was not there yet. And I was a fluent speaker. I, I, I navigated myself very well in that society and working with people. You know, I want to be the one to launch our operations in China. And they, I got the approval to do that. So for four or five years after that, I was basically spending one week a month in China you know, hiring people, doing business there. Um, but after that, it's funny because if I wanted to continue to move the business forward, at some point I would have had to have moved to China. And I wasn't ready to do that because I had lived in Japan for eight or nine years at that point, but I really didn't have a track record in Japan, which I really wanted to build. So that's where I pulled the plug on that company uh, and ended up working with this Canadian startup out of Ottawa and I basically launched their Asia. They, they had like, you know, BizDev from Ottawa headquarters or from the U.S. side. They had some deals in the pipeline in, in Asia, but they really weren't attacking it strategically. So they hired me uh, to represent them as regional VP of Asia sales and to really launch. And after two years, we were generating 30% of our sales from Asia. So it was a, it was a very, very successful venture. And um, yeah, it was, it was great experience as well. With, with, with the semiconductor company, my experience was mainly in China. With this company, I was serving clients, you know, Japan, China, Korea, Taiwan, Hong Kong. So it was a, it was a great experience that professionally, because I ended up working with them for, uh, I don't know, six, seven years. It really had a deep impact on my career. Are you talking about, by the way, the age of TQM? 
when they were booming, like total quality management area and stuff like that. So uh, have you heard of Professor Edwards Demi? Of course. Okay. I haven't. Uh, yeah. Most people in sales and marketing haven't, but if you're in manufacturing, you have. And every employee at the semiconductor manufacturing plant, every employee went through training, which included what's called the Deming cycle, which is PDCA, plan, do, check, action, and how you apply that to everything you do. And that's why the name of my digital agency is called PDCA Social, because I found that that was the perfect, you know, uh, Professor Dedemins is considered the, the godfather of quality control. So he's actually better known in Japan than he is in the United States because Toyota, Sony, and they all owe their, you know, uh, their, their, their high quality, low cost, low cost manufacturing secrets to the teachings of Professor Dedemins. But when I was looking for a structure, a framework to teach companies how to, you know, build and manage social media marketing and, and digital marketing strategies, that's where I realized that PDCA was the framework. And I, I use it religiously with, with my clients and with my own brand. Um, and, and yes, the, it was the age where uh, Japan was at the top. Uh, this was the 90s when I lived there. Now, they really peaked in the bubble, you know, 1989, 1990. But obviously, this is before the emergence of Samsung and LG, where we were still buying a, a lot more Japanese consumer electronic devices than we are today. We had iMode in the mobile phone world before the iPhone, right? Uh, and NTT was going to take over uh, the mobile phone space. They were already working on bringing IMO to, to Europe and the United States. So it was a, it was a very, very interesting time. And, and, you know, on the flip side, I also saw why Japan started to decline as they sort of ignored these global digital internet trends, how Korean companies like Samsung and LG were so smart at really uh, embracing it and um, really opening up, you know, a, a applying themselves to more global standards, whereas Japan really wanted to create their own, their own global standard and have everybody, uh, you know, buy into that. And I think that was one of the, the fatal mistakes they made. But I agree. But uh, on the other sense, the company that you're working for sent you to Japan, China, Singapore. Yeah, I hear even a little bit of Korea there. And each, like, this is something that a lot of people are, are confused about. These are, it's not Canada, U.S., where there are a lot of similarities. They are totally, like, when you're talking about Singapore, English-speaking, uh, maybe some similarities in the culture of Japan. China is like a different game all over the place. It's, it's So, like, how do you adapt to that? Like, how did you feel like, um, it's like, a, a, like anything you do there is 100% different. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And I, <clears throat> I did brush over it as if it was nothing, but, but yeah. And it's, it's funny because that's the analogy I use when I talk about social media, you know, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, they're, they're all their own country. They all have their own unique culture, their own currency, their own way of doing business. The value of a contract is in general in Asia is just nothing like it is in the United States. As you can imagine, a business is done by handshakes, what have you. Uh, a lot of business is done by a lot of late night alcohol drinking in, in complete honesty. In China, you know, during breaks and meetings, I don't smoke cigarettes, but sometimes I would smoke that occasional cigarette uh, in China doing business when everybody I was negotiating with, we took a break and that actually helped to break the ice and build up that relationship. So I, I do believe that uh, business is more based and probably in Europe as well. It's more based on relationships on common experiences and also the fact that people really do not forget. Um, they do not forget if you help them out, if you help their business out. I've just found that that, that that concept has really benefited me because people don't forget when you do something for them. Uh, and they remember a long time. And uh, you know, th there are anecdotes of the time where the biggest deal in my company's history, um, you know, we didn't get the business. And still I wanted to meet with the, uh, uh, with the business leader 
and say, and, and say, I totally respected their decision. Um, and that if anything ever went wrong, we're, you know, we're, we're not going to take this as a rejection. We're here, We're still going to be here to support you. Um, and that person didn't even want to meet with me because he felt so bad that they rejected my company. But, you know, six months later, I got the phone call. We were back in the game and we ended up closing, you know, it was the biggest contract in our history in Asia at the time um, because people don't forget, right? Uh, the time where uh, in Shanghai, one of my Chinese customers, we were obviously producing semiconductors. And the thing you want to avoid is when your clients or when your customers' factory lines go down because of your component, even if it was their fault for not purchasing it far in advance or what have you, or, or not keeping control of their inventory. And so when, you know, when the director of the plant calls me saying, I know it was our fault, but we really need you to do this. And that day I, got, I went to our, our, uh, our logistics center, I got an airplane, and that afternoon I was in Shanghai at the airport personally giving him that component. Well, you can imagine over time, we got more and more share and finally a very, very strategic component. Um, they ended up, you know, switching over to, to our company. So, and after that, I, we had a, a dinner for a hundred um, <laughs> at a, at a, at a Shanghai crab restaurant. Um, obviously the, the price of that was very little, but it was just, it was just solidifying this relationship that we're in this together and we both help each other out. And this is something that's just very, very different then, I mean, obviously the components of, of, of relationships and businesses everywhere, but not to the extent that you see in Asia. So much is still done person to person. That's why, especially in B2B businesses, especially in Japan, digital is really late. They don't, they don't really join webinars. They don't really do a lot of virtual calls like this. So it's been interesting to see them have to change over the last three months. But it really is, it, it really is more personal based, but it is very, very different. And I think, you know, uh, my brother once referred to me as like a piece of tofu, like stick Neil anywhere. He'll absorb the local language, the local culture, and he'll adapt and figure it out. And it's really, you know, my background's more in sales and marketing. And in sales, you listen. I know I'm doing a lot of talking right now, but in sales, you listen, right? You listen, you adapt, you try to find the problems and you try to offer them solutions. And if you can stick with that attitude, and you know what? It's also the thought process that maybe I'm not the right fit for your company. Maybe my company's products aren't the right fit for your company. And if we're not, that's great. I'll introduce you to someone that, that is a perfect fit because I know that having a referral network is a great thing as well. But it's really keeping that, that mindset. And especially with coronavirus, I remind companies, you know, business is here to serve society, right? I'm here to serve you. And if I can't, then I'll find someone who can. But if I can, I really want to help you. I want to understand your problems. And that is universal regardless of language. Obviously, in, in some countries, some cultures, it takes a little bit longer. Um, I found that Korea, I found that Japan and China were a lot easier to crack. I found that Korea was actually the most challenging, probably structurally, because there, there, is, there seems to be more of a tendency there to stick with these large, they call them the chable. There are these large sort of um, networks of companies all owned under the same umbrella where you can get anything and everything from the same company, uh, you know, like Samsung and Hyundai and LG. So that was definitely a challenge from, from a structural perspective. Um, but I, I think the general, you know, concept of doing business and of relationships and of serving people and of serving society is, is something that's universal. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And I also will add to that, that I think like the biggest mistake that junior salespeople make uh, is to try and speak more than the person they're listening to, sort of try to be, to to control the conversation and, and also to try and sell no matter what. And I think the more experienced a salesperson is, the more they understand that their job is to be a trusted advisor and to listen 
and also to say when it's not a good fit. And especially when yeah. you're playing the long run game, then, you know, as you said, you don't know who they know. So there's the entire referral system and you're sticking to your values. You're delivering only what you're able to. And even if it takes longer, then I think closing rates are much higher in the long term when people sort of conduct themselves that way. So it's interesting that you're saying that it's sort of uh, across the board and you're seeing it like in a multicultural way. Yeah, I mean, without a doubt, um, when we talk about especially like China, Japan, Korea, obviously, uh, both China and Korea have history with Japan, where Japan invaded both countries. So th there is still, even though this is like 100 years ago, there is still an amazing amount of distrust. So when the Japanese company hires an American to go to China, it was really, really interesting. And I had Chinese employees actually tell me, you know, I may not have worked for a Japanese company. But because you're an American boss, I really wanted to work with you. So I think that in some ways, being an American in, you know, navigating through those cultures helped me. I think it also, you know, in, in a sea of 100 Japanese salesperson and I'm the lone Caucasian, it definitely helped me be memorable. And that's sort of half the battle, right, in sales. So without a doubt, but it also worked against me of, of companies that we do not want to work with foreign companies. We only want to work with other Japanese companies or other Korean companies. So, um, you know, it, it can work for or against you. But, but in general, I think I was fortunate because my experience in sales was in industries with very, very long sales cycles. The semiconductor, you know, sales cycle was shorter, but in terms of enterprise software, this was, and working with telcos, This is a very, very long, like 12 to 24 month sales cycle. So it teaches you patience. And this is what a lot of salespeople lack. It's what some sales managers lack. It's what some executives lack because sometimes it generally takes time to develop business because it takes time to develop relationships, right? It, it's the same thing I preach with, with digital marketing. You can't just, you know, push a Facebook ad to someone today and expect them to buy from you tomorrow. It takes time to get people to like, know, and trust you as a business as it does in person. In fact, it takes even more time to trust a business than it does to trust a person. Yeah, and what are the odds of somebody seeing an ad and then through that buying something that requires a relationship and trust? But, but, also, exactly. but also, I like it. This is interesting for me. So because we, we all are um, on the generation that, you know, we had both sides, like you were doing those sales, and there, there was this big change and we're, we are adapting. So tofu... Uh, <laughs> tofu for you but the adaptation is very interesting because no matter what the sales cycle you worked in a, per, a personal uh, retention strategy meaning where you're building trust and relationship and referrals and then he'll call me back because he moves a job and whatever which was you know that was the style and today it's a lot about data like you're testing things and you're doing the journeys and stuff like that And, you know, I can say less, more relationship with the brand, less personal relationship. And I'm wondering, like, the, for the, uh, how, how did you adapt that? And how do you find having a personal relationship as an advantage? Well, what's really interesting is I, I, you know, you're right. Now it's so data centric and there's so much information available that instead of having to rely on a salesperson for information, and, and this is a B2B paradigm that I'm talking about, obviously, you go to the internet, you find information, right? Um, so it, it is very different in that aspect. However, where I'm, where I'm feeling that what I learned about relationships is so invaluable is obviously when you get to, if you're closing a big deal and you need to, you need to, you know, pitch to other executives, just being able to obviously engage and, and build relationships uh, with people you've never met that at some point you may have to, 
during, during a deal. Even if people find that information and contact you, there might be other people that you need to interact with. And that's where doing your best to develop those relationships and more and more digitally helps. Where I find it really helps is the work I've done more recently in influencer marketing, where if you want to leverage influencers and really every company in every industry should, and you really want to get the word out there and incite word of mouth in social media organically, um, this does come down to relationships. And these are relationships that are very much in that traditional paradigm that I just talked about in doing business that, that do have to be individualized, you know, one-to-one. Um, you may not be able to meet people, but even virtually, how can you develop? How can you help people? How can you serve them? Um, and, and that's something that I think maybe because we have been transformed into an era where instead of outward sales, you have inside sales teams, right? And they're not building as deep of relationships as, as the traditional enterprise salesperson was. But, um, you know, those companies that now miss out on, on the fact that at the heart of it, if you want to uh, get people to talk about your brand, you, you need to develop a relationship with them now. Uh, and, and that's a very, very interesting, you know, paradigm in marketing that I think a lot of marketers never really thought about always the one to many message. So, uh, it, it still is applicable today in a different way, um, different medium and to a different extent. Um, but getting back, you know, to the original uh, conversation about schools and socializing our kids, I still think it is important for that reason that there are still going to be a need for those relationships. And even if they're not externally with customers, you're definitely going to need them internally with other people in your organization. But how do you scale that on the influencer marketing? You're saying, okay, you have like the personal relationship is what makes it move, but how do you scale that? Like, yeah, I understand. That means you're the business, right? So like, how do you scale yourself? So are you talking about uh, brands pitching influencer marketing? Or are you talking about yourself as an influencer? So you said like the, the one of the, like in influencer marketing, you still have to have the direct relationships. Like it wouldn't work. Right. So like, how do you scale a business that's, you know, influencer marketing is, is, um, is a key strategy on marketing? Right. So this is the number one question I get asked by marketers. How do I scale one-to-one relationships in influence marketing? And the fact of the matter is you can't. You scale by working with people who deliver results over time. So, um, and, and what the other way you scale is you bring people together. After you develop the one-to-one relationships, you create a program where you can speak to more and more people at once after you develop that one-to-one relationship. So there are still ways to scale in that scenario, but the more you invest in the one-to-one relationship, the more you're going to get out of it. The more, the higher the chance you convert them into becoming a brand advocate, the more you know about them, the more you know how, how you can help them so that they can help you more and what have you. So you can't scale human relationships. And this is where, even though we live in a very, very digital world, that analog relationship building is something that is still necessary. I mean, for some things more than other, but we, we still need to understand, even as a marketer or you know, anyone, we need to understand how people think. And if we don't socialize with them, how do we know how people think, right? So this is still a core skill that's needed. And yeah, in marketing with influencers, you know, companies try to scale it. One way they scale is they just work with an agency and let them do all the work. The other one is they'll just like go to a marketplace. Okay, I'll find 10 people, boom, campaign's launched. Um, and they may be leaving a lot of money on the table or wasting a lot of money when they do that. So to get the best results, it does require the ability to develop those relationships. But if you do it intelligently, uh, after a while and you have influencers in a program, um, you can scale that to a certain extent. And you said before that you're a solo entrepreneur right now, right? 
I'm a solopreneur, correct? I mean, I do have staff, but I still consider myself a solopreneur. What's the biggest challenge of being that, like that, that type of uh, entrepreneur? I think the biggest challenge is knowing how and when to pivot. Because as an entrepreneur, you're probably wearing a lot of hats, doing a lot of things, and every client's needs might be slightly different. So it's knowing what to go after and when to go after it, because you're always being bombarded or you're finding hopefully different business opportunities to apply your product service or experience intellectual property to. So it's a constant gamble. I guess whenever you launch a business, it's a gamble as well, right? But you know, the challenge is also the learning experience because the more times you fail, the better you get at it, right? You're not going to succeed unless you fail. So actually getting through those iterations is a positive thing, but it can be scary and it can be, you know, it, it, it still is the challenge. Um, and it is the difference into how fast and how much your business grows depending on those opportunities you choose to take or, or decide not to take. And why do you call yourself a solo entrepreneur if you do have a team? <laughs> that's a great question. I don't have full-time employees, that's why. So, and the team is very flexible. Uh, and I'd say the team, you know, when I have clients uh, that they fit in, where I can plug them in, I plug them in, uh, but at a minimum, they're working on my brand. So yeah, I think that every solopreneur today is hiring people in a similar way. They're not hiring full-time employees. They're hiring people virtually remotely for various tasks. So I don't even know if a solopreneur exists if they are, you know, every business works with a CPA for their taxes, right? Uh, or, or, or uses different services. So I think that's just a natural part of doing business right now, in all honesty. But like, do your, uh, do your remote team work with the clients? They do not work directly with the clients. And maybe that's why I, I think I still call myself a solopreneur. The, and, and here's the thing. I've, maybe it's because the way that I done business, but when businesses reach out to me, they will write in the contract. I have a company name, but they'll write in the contract. This work is to be done by Neil Schaefer, right? Um, and when I realized that, it's like, why am I trying to escape from my personal brand? I should be leveraging it um, as a way to humanize my brand and, and as a way to get into more relationships. Obviously, within a contract, depending on the task, I will negotiate, hey, these are tasks that I have a team that helped me do. Um, and, and you know, companies will agree to that. But there's a lot of companies, I mean, especially when it comes to consulting, what have you, they want me to be the person that delivers it. So I'm very careful as to what clients I work with. I'm very careful about pricing and about time requirements so that I myself can, can continue to scale my business. So that's, that's actually really interesting. So a lot of entrepreneurs are like service providers. And one of the biggest challenges that I get from a lot of companies that want me to invest or, or uh, help out, one of the biggest problems is actually planning how many clients they can take, okay, and still have a good job and still make enough money and or maximize the amount of ROI that they get off. And the equation is pretty tough because you never know when problems arise. You never know when they needed more and less. How do you chat? Like, how do you, what's your way of thinking to be efficient? The best way is to have long-term contracts. So if you're providing, I started out providing a, it was basically a three-month type of, of service, a social media strategy consulting service. And there were so many companies out there that needed it that even though, you know, three months later, there are always other clients. Well, as the industry matures, that changes, right? And you can't, you know, you can't create a business off of a three-month product. You need to have longer-term relationships. And it was later when I launched my agency where it's like, okay, if I build in a contract, a 12-month contract, I know that money is in the pipeline. 
and that allows me to hire more people, uh, you know, to build up a bigger team and to service more customers in the future. So I think the secret is in providing something that there is some type of a, a, a retainer, a long-term, if it's, if it's a one-time product, that becomes very, very difficult to do. But I think that's for any manufacturing company, they have the same issue. Um, if it's service, then you definitely have to be able to reinvent or to add a component where you do have that recurring revenue over time. And that's why, I mean, that's why most software companies have a SaaS business model for that reason, right? Uh, you end up making more, it's predictable, what have you. So you need to be able to create more predictable revenue. And that has been the way that I've been able to do that. That's very patient of you. Like as an entrepreneur, patience is usually, you know, not something that you have. That means you're very patient. You know, living in Japan for 15 years um, and that society and culture, uh, patience is such a virtue there. It's taught me a lot to have a very, very long term view. And, and maybe and sometimes I've had too long term view of things and maybe it should have been a little bit shorter. But yes, I tend to have a long term view and I tend to see I tend to see that things evolve over time. And sometimes it's like. You know, I was in Beijing, China during the Tiananmen demonstrations, and I was a junior. In my senior year, I wanted to write my university thesis on those demonstrations. And I'll never forget my father's, may he rest in peace, say, Neil, do you really want to write about something that just happened? Because you don't have the historical perspective to see where it fits in, what its significance or impact was. And I really apply that to business in general, right? Because sometimes you do need to take time, even... I usually don't like to predict like, hey, you know, three months from now, there's going to be a, no one's going to go back into the office and, and companies are going to go 100% remote. I, I don't like to be a fortune teller because there's zero historical perspective, right? Um, and, and I think that's often what's necessary. And I think by looking back at, of how things progress in your business, how companies engage with you, engage with your products and services, there's an incredible amount of insight that you can find that can really help point the way toward point the way forward to your future, but you don't find it until some time has passed. It's just human nature. And I've always had that perspective. And what was it like to return to the United States after all those years? It was culture shock. <laughs> Even when I lived in Japan, because I was so immersed and I only spoke Japanese with the exception of phone calls back to the United States, it, it was all in Japanese, everything I did. And I was so immersed there that, it, you know, all of a sudden I'm just plunged back in the United States Uh, and it was it was very, very different now, um you know obviously, because I'd come back you know once or twice a year, it wasn't as hard, but yeah, it was different uh you know, setting up a, a support system that I didn't have because things in the United States had changed over fifteen years as well, but it wasn't as bad as you would think because I still was working at the same company with the same employees now I was remotely managing them from the united states and and you know visiting asia on on a uh on a, a, a business uh, trip basis. But, um, but yeah, but once again, I'm sort of the king of adaptation, I guess. So uh, my tofu went back to its original flavor and I did okay. So how did you end up leaving that company and sort of venturing out on your own? It was actually more driven by family. So, you know, my wife, who is, is, was not and, and is not like fluent in English, it wasn't, you know, we, we got married um, and we speak Japanese as our primary language. And when we got married and, and, and came over here to the United States, we had a baby. And a year down the road, number two was coming along. And I was doing a lot of travel for this company. And my wife was, was like, "I just I can't do this, right? My, you know her mom wasn't with us, and that's very traditional in Japan where the, the mother-in-law helps out with, uh, or, or the mother helps out with, with child rearing in early ages. They were, they were physically distanced. There was a language barrier. 
the United States is not as easy for immigrants to, to live in as you might think by popular culture. Um, and, and, and I realized at that point that I really had to pull the plug temporarily on my career in order to support my wife and my family. So that's where I went back to my boss. I said, look, I need to switch to a, a more of a part-time consultant role. Um, in order to help my family. And, and a year from now, we'll see where we go. So they agreed. I was a part-time consultant for a year. And a year later, I realized that I wanted to get into a little, I was in a very, very niche uh, B2B tech industry. I wanted something a little bit broader where I thought there were more opportunities. Um, and that's the first time where I ended up looking for a job in the United States. And that's where I found out about something called LinkedIn. And that's really what began my social media journey. I ended up finding a job as director of APAC for a technology company and then, or director of business development for APAC, I should say. And then, you know, three and a half months after they hire me, they pull the plug because of the Lehman Brothers crisis and they're restructuring, they're pulling the plug in international business. And, and that was the ultimate slap on the face. And I realized that I was so passionate, so into what I was doing and a company at any time like that can take it all away from you. And so I realized I had to build something that no one could take away from me. And that was my personal brand. So I'd already started a blog that year. And uh, my wife is like, look, if you don't find a job, why don't you write a book? And I sort of laughed at her. But, you know, um, it was real, the 2009 was a really, really hard year. Uh, and I think a lot of college graduates this year are facing the same thing here. Um, it, was, it, was a, it was really, really hard, not just to find a job, but I was an American living in the United States trying to represent companies in Asia where they're saying, well, we can just hire someone locally in Asia. We don't need an American living in the United States to do this. So at some point, I had to reinvent myself. And I think that, that that timing and what the knowledge I had started to build with, with social media and looking at it as a business tool um, just really helped me develop unique expertise that when I ended up publishing that book in 2009, which led to speaking deals, which led to me launching my consulting business in January 2010, it, it, it helped complete this, this reinvention of Neil Schaefer from the corporate B2B sales marketing biz dev in Asia guy to the person I am today, to, to the solopreneur, um, you know, that, that is everything digital and social media marketing. So uh, I'm quite thankful, once again, with historical perspective, all those things that went against me were actually going in favor of me and they allowed me the opportunity and I, I took advantage of that opportunity and here I am today. And were you sort of scared to publish a book or did you feel confident? Oh, I was really scared. <laughs> I was really scared because at the time, you know, LinkedIn, um, traditionally, they close their APIs. They're not, a, uh, they're not a friendly partner with a lot of software companies. There's been a lot of, and there's been lawsuits. And, you know, I know at the time they were going after someone that had like LinkedIn in the URL, um, you know, cease and desist letter. So when I was writing this book, I was really scared that for whatever reason, because I was really into open networking at the time. So I was really scared that they were going to come after me. So I hired a lawyer and he's like, as long as you don't, you don't put things as factual where they can go against you and say those weren't facts, you're okay. So there was a lot of, in my opinion, or based on my experience, um, just as a, as, as a CYA, as we call it here in the United States, just to make sure that I'm not giving them any legal reason to go after me. Um, and since then, obviously, we have, a, we have a really good relationship today. But in those early days, I, I was really scared of that. And, and like, it, it sounds to me like, um, I, and we, we have this characteristic that comes back uh, a lot when we do these podcasts. It sounds like you found, found opportunities when other people had disasters and not in a bad way, because it sounds like you're an optimist as a character. I'm asking, not saying, because usually the optimists say, okay, like not how bad is it? 
but what good can I take from this bad situation? Right. So like, I feel like from any situation, the, the challenges were because you have an interesting story, right? Japan and China and Korea and uh, Canada and US and writing the book when there's, you know, in a bad timing, you know, but uh, so that's really interesting for me that you actually saw like, what is there to, to take out of this? And you even do it when you're meeting clients, because you're actually saying, hey, I'm not going to sell you, but I'm going to refer you. That means I'm optimistic that this, that I'm doing something that's objective right now will pay out sometime, which is not something, you know, everybody can do. Is that like a feature that you know about yourself or? Yeah, well, I'm a big fan of karma. And um, yeah, I, I am. I'm, I'm the total optimist, <laughs> without a doubt. Uh, and it's funny because, yeah, I mean, I published my latest book on influence marketing, the age of influence. It came out in March. It came out two days before California went on a lockdown. And I wrote this Facebook post just like two weeks ago that everyone was feeling sour for me. What a bad time to put out a book. But I realized that because I didn't have to travel as much because I do a lot of speaking, I didn't have to travel at all. It gave me the opportunity to do things I never had the time to do in terms of launching my book. It gave me the ability to really come on to more podcasts like this, virtually develop a lot more relationships than I ever did before because now everyone is in front of a computer and they'll respond back to you. And it gave me a chance to create more to really double down on content as well. So by doubling down on content and relationships, it's helped me a great deal. And I never feel sorry for myself. The timing is what it is, but you need to find a way to use these things to work as an advantage. Uh, and I embrace the challenge and I, I love challenges. You know, it's, I don't know if you're a fan of how I met your mother, but the character Barney Stinson, you know, challenge accepted no matter what challenge he had. And, and that's the same with me. And, and I think that's, that's the fun of life is in taking on challenges. And it, like I said, if you fail, it's not a failure. You learn something. If you succeed, you feel great. So yes, in that way, I am an optimist. And I think that, you know, when it's, when you need to be paranoid, I can be paranoid. Uh, but there's still this, this, you know, belief in, in, you know, belief in the good of people and belief in karma, that definitely helps keep me going. And how did you get your first customers? Or was it through the reputation that you've built uh, through publishing a book? Yeah, you know, it's funny that it was the book, and then the speaking, and then it just happened. There were, I still remember very, very clearly in four, uh, in two weeks, in January of 2010, I had four different companies reach out to me, all from different industries. One had actually read my book, um, one reached out to me from a local networking group. Um, and one reached out to me, they saw me speak. And in fact, the other one reached out to me from a referral from someone I met at a networking event. And it's really funny because what I've learned is that getting back to relationships, even digitally, what I've learned is that my most valuable, my longest term customers have all come not from digital and social media, but from personal relationships. I want you to think about that. And this is someone that has a verified Twitter profile that has a blog with, you know, I get a lot of traffic. I have hundreds of blog posts. I'm verified on Facebook. I have like 15,000 Instagram followers. The best business, the highest quality, longest lasting business. And even more recently, even, you know, last week, I, I have a, another big opportunity. Yes, the, the CEO bought my book. And as he was in a board of directors meeting, he happened to mention that he wants to do what this book says to do in terms of influencer marketing. And there's a guy in the meeting who I know from social media, uh, from Orange County. We, are, we go back a decade. He goes, hey, I know the author. Why don't we have an interview with him, see how he can help us? And that's how I got into interview the CEO of this company. So I, the book and everything else helps, but the personal relationships really help solidify it. It really puts you above your competition significantly. And it does lead to business and it leads to long lasting business because at the end of the day, 
we want to do business with people we know, like, and trust. So, but that makes sense, though, because it, I don't think that contradicts in any form. Because I think that basically what you're saying is that the social media is a leverage to generating real-life relationships. Yes, if you look at it that way, yes, absolutely. It still does. The social media is another extension. It's a way to get people to know you and to get to know you a little bit. But at the end of the day, yes, it does come down to the relationship. Social media is just another tool, just like an offline networking meeting. Uh, and those are more online these days, but they're just different tools to get you to, to, you know, to create the opportunity for you to meet people. What you do with it from there is really up to you. But your forte is basically to make those opportunities happen through that tool, right? Yes, I, I guess you could say that. Yes, to, to find opportunity, to build um, thought leadership, and at the end of the day, to develop business from those tools. Some is more short-term, some is more long-term, some less value, some more value. But it's all about creating opportunities and generating revenue from those. And you've been doing this for now over 10 years? Yeah, second decade. And how, how much have you seen uh, social media evolve with respect to your strategies? <laughs> Yeah, oh, it's, it's evolved tremendously. And that's where when you ask me about, you know, being a successful solopreneur, entrepreneur, um, it comes down to the pivoting, right? Of knowing when to pivot, where to pivot, how to pivot. Because, you know, for all those people, there are people that invested in creating software tools to help you manage your Google Plus. Okay, think about that. Where are those people now, right? Or uh, speakers or agencies that just specialized on Snapchat and then Instagram comes along. So you can't have emotional relationships with any of these social networks. Um, and you need to know when it's time where you need to move on. The industry matures. Fewer companies need a social media strategy. In fact, the companies that most need social media strategies are startups and small businesses that don't necessarily have a big budget. And the enterprises, they want to work with other large companies. They don't want to work with the Neil Schaefer's. They want to work with the Edelman's and, and, and the big PR agencies. So uh, you, you always have to be pivoting and finding those opportunities. And that has been the single truth in 10 years of doing business is you always have to be pivoting. So I'll never forget when this pandemic started, one of the last conferences I spoke at was a conference called Social Media Marketing World in San Diego. And there was another speaker talking to me and, and, and she knew that I do a lot of business overseas, especially Japan. She goes, well, what are you going to do now? You know? And it's like, well, you know, I'll figure it out because my business isn't hundred percent dependent on speaking and maybe there'll be more virtual opportunities that come up. And this person was saying, you know, they, they're, they feel confident because all their businesses in the United States. Well, guess what? A month later, all of her domestic speaking opportunities were canceled. Right? So if you were always pivoting, you know what to do. It's like when I posted on my Facebook, stay at home, stay safe. And then one of my friends, perhaps from the opposite side of the political, political spectrum said, you know, small businesses are dying and you want us to stay at home. <laughs> and I said, you know, I'm a small business. I'm not dying. You need to pivot. And if small businesses aren't pivoting, yes, they're going to die. They need to figure this out. Right. And smart ones will. And this is not the first crisis. We were in a crisis 11, 12 years ago. That's what started my career in social media. So I'm a, you know, you, you, you ha in life, you have to learn how to do this. Uh, if you're a salaried employee at any time, it could go like that. If you work for a venture capital funded company, all of a sudden they're going to bring in a new leadership team. Goodbye. I mean, there's no guarantees in life. There's no guarantees in business. You always have to be operating that way. Yes, I'm an optimist, but like I said, there's also this paranoid realist side that teaches me you always need to be out there pivoting. You always need to be thinking, where's your next customer? Where's your next revenue? How is this going to look 12 months from now? You, you, you got to be real, um, but you always have to have 
that, that somewhat flexible mindset because things are changing. And, you know, I remember when I was in high school, we read a book called, was it Future Shock? of how things change really, really quickly. And you hear of like Moore's law, you know, the power of semiconductors increase doubles every two years. Um, it, you know, the frequency of change is only seems to be increasing. Um, so it becomes more important, more and more important over time to, to figure out how to pivot your business, to find opportunity, but also to safeguard yourself when crises happen, because they will happen. That's a very good insight because what, what, um, what we have been learning a lot is, your pivot strategy is very, very important. By the way, not only on social networks, I think the internet is like a one big pivot opportunity because the difference is you were talking about China and TQM and total quality. And, you know, when you're building a desk or a speaker or anything, it's that product and that's the end game. But today, when you're getting out an application or anything, the feedback is part of it. So you have like 2.0, 2.4, 2.8. It's like always pivoting, always changing and evolving. And that's the internet. So it's like, that's like the biggest thing in a career when, you know, people don't understand why they're moving the careers. It's because if you don't know how to move and get catch up, you're on a problem. Like, like my, my, my question with this, how do you build an end game for yourself when you know that there's going to be so many changes on the way? Well, I want to get back to your point there. It wasn't Gmail and beta for like 10 years, right. case in point. So anyway, um, but how do, you, how do you prove an in-game? You know, it comes down to what do you want to do? In all honesty, what are you passionate about? What is the work you like to do? So if you're an entrepreneur, you're passionate about something, but after a while you figure, you know what, this isn't really, this isn't really something I want to do. That's when you really need to shift gears. So the end game always has to be and it's like Steve Jobs looking himself in the mirror. Apparently, that's what he did every day. Do I enjoy doing what I'm doing, right? Um, and you need to ask yourself that question. I don't necessarily mean a daily basis, but if you don't enjoy what you're doing, then there, there's something wrong. You need to pivot. I think that's the most natural pivot because if you enjoy doing what you're doing, chances are the product or the service that you offer is going to be all the better for it. So the end game is... I need to make this much money, right? Over the next 12 months, how am I going to make that money? What are the different product services I have now? Where are the opportunities? I think that there's, there should always be sort of an R&D perspective. Um, my R&D perspective is Fridays I spend trying to do my own internal R&D, whether it's you know, content creation or, or you know, podcast interviews or what have you. But you know, it's funny, um, today, one of the reasons why I called in a few minutes late, I'll be totally transparent, is I got this podcast interview mixed up with another one that I'm doing tomorrow. And I was preparing for the one tomorrow, totally forgetting it was about today. And it was all about innovation, right? Like how does innovation uh, emerge? So I think to apply what I was preparing for, for that interview to, to this interview, um, is that a lot of, you know, what is the end game? The way that I've been able to pivot most successfully is simply listening to my customers. Because if you listen carefully, you find problems, challenges they have, whether it's working with competitors or they have problems and there's not a product or service that meets those needs. So it's up to you to actually make that product or service. And I think that if you really engage with your customers, no matter how few or how many you have, you, that you understand how they use your product, what are the challenges they have both with your product and outside of your product or service, I think that's where you find a lot of opportunities. At the end of the day, for, you know, it, it was like in, in the semiconductors, great analogy. So for every, you know, back then, uh, the Shanghai company was producing fax machines. So for every fax machine, they would use like $10 of our components. How do we get them to use $15 of our components or $20 of our components? We can't 
we can't control how much they're going to grow as a company, but we can control our footprint within that company. So how can you control the footprint within each of your customers? It's trying to find how do you generate more revenue from those relationships. And I think that's another end game is if you have a client base is how to do that. And inevitably, if you just stick to what you're doing now, you're not going to increase your sales to them unless somehow they grow. Um, you need to figure out more ways to get embedded uh, in, in, inside their company and, and find more ways to deliver more products and services to them. Which again so, ties down to listening. Which comes down to listening. <laughs> yes, and, and the relationship, right? In, where they would actually tell you these things. So it's really interesting. We, we, I'm getting asked a lot about customer experience and customer experience marketing. And, you know, I mean, are you having conversations with your customers? You know, that this uh, B2B startup I'm working with we're doing, you know, the, the, the marketing is doing awesome, but they're not able to convert leads. I'm like, do you have a customer success person that's actually helping people when they sign up for the demo? Do you have someone following up with them? Do you have like, you know, do, do you have customer education? And this is one thing I've told a lot of companies with the pandemic is it's a great time if you haven't created customer education content and a customer education community and you're not engaging with your customers to, to answer their questions uh, because chances are they're not going to contact you and engage with you unless they have a problem, right? You want to be proactive and there's so many benefits in doing so. One of the biggest ones is exactly this, is getting that information that's going to help you with your next product or service. Amen. And Neil, what would you say your superpower is? <sighs> Great question. I think um, probably because my background is more from the sales and the marketing side and I tend to play more marketing than sales, it's just a very, very rational dumb down meat and potatoes look at something called marketing, which to a lot of people that don't work in marketing, they see it as being very esoterical. They see it as being very much driven by, you know, esoterical branding, um, something that just eats up a lot of money where they don't understand what are they getting for the spend. So I take the opposite approach. When I work with the companies, it's like, what does your funnel look like? We're going to appropriate money, but every dollar that we spend has to fit somewhere in the funnel. We're going to measure, we're going to test, we're going to do PDCA, and it's going to become a well-optimized machine over time where we are going to predict for this spend, we're going to get this revenue. And to a lot of companies, that's, that's very, very refreshing. I don't, and I tell companies, you know, I don't own you. I was the anti-agency consultant. I only launched an agency when my consulting client said, we just don't have the resources to do this, and I help them. But at the heart of it, I really, you know, I'm, I'm all about best practices. And it's like when I worked in Japan, I'll never forget uh, the, the semiconductor company I, company I was working with. We were in a joint venture negotiation. And one of the biggest Japanese trading houses was part of that negotiation. And one of the senior people there really took a liking to me. And, and over lunch in Shanghai, he was like, Neil, are you like one of the board of investors for the semiconductor company? Because the way you present yourself is you, you go above and beyond just a salesperson. And I told him. And what I tell every, all the clients I work with, I am, working, I am working on behalf of your investment team. I am working on behalf of your CEO. And even if they're not in the room, that's who I report to, even if I report to you and you're lower than that. Because I know if I do work at that level and if I can you know, speak to and explain my work to that person for whatever I do, I know that I'm always going to be doing the best I can be doing and I know that I'm going to be a success. And that is something that freaks out a lot of people when I say that, but that's the mentality. And once again, living in Japan for 15 years really embedded me with a very, very different professional mentality than if I had been, if I had been doing this in the United States. But that sort of mentality, I think, has really, really helped me. And it's really, it's not about emotion. 
um, I'll never forget, you know, I'm just going back in, in my history here. There was a time when I quit the semiconductor company and in between the Canadian company, there was an American company I worked with a two year, worked for, for two years. But I went to, I was really, really interested in marketing and I actually got an offer from Procter & Gamble to work at their Asian headquarters, which was in Kobe, Japan. And I'll never forget, they had a group interview and they were, you know, here's a new product, you know, what's your marketing plan? And there were six of us. And I'll never forget the most vocal person was saying, well, you know, I like this product, so I don't see why everybody else wouldn't like this product. And I'll never forget. And, you know, the, the, the chief person, you know, that was looking at the interview was sitting at the table at the time. It's like, and I said, you know, it's not about what I like. It's about what our customer market might like or might not like. And we can't base these decisions, these decisions on emotions. We have to base them on data, right? So this is something else that's always stuck with me, this data-driven approach that we need to take emotion 100% out of the game. So I know I've done a lot of talking. There's a lot of, there's, you know, everybody has a story to tell. Everybody's a combination of these unique threads in our life, right? A unique uh, mix of chemistry. But that's sort of another part that I think has really helped me. But wait, did you get offered that job? I did. Cool. And I turned them down because this American startup was offering me, <laughs> offering me way more money. So that was, uh, I went from a $2.5 billion annual company. I turned down Procter & Gamble. I was also talking with like Dell and FedEx uh, and I ended up working with uh, an American startup that was a $200 million company. And then I ended up working with a Canadian startup that was like $7 million in annual revenue. And here I am today. So um, I, I actually prefer the startup, the, the smaller business, because I, you know, I think I, I get more exposure into everything business when, when you work at that scale. Yeah, that's definitely a mic drop right now. You know. <laughs> Turn them down, rock star, you know, startup. And what on the other side, what, what yeah. would you say our kryptonite is? My kryptonite. So my the the special energy, my source of energy, or the opposite of superpower. What would be your weakness? Oh, okay. Yeah, I wasn't a big comic person growing up. Um, we're such geeks so that we don't. It doesn't even occur to us. We, yeah, we 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 weren't either. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> anyway, my weakness is, and I think it's a weakness for almost everybody, is we can always be better at time management. And I really shouldn't be saying that because. As I learn more and more and, and read more and more and listen to more and more podcasts and hear more and more people, the problem isn't in your time management. The problem is in what you place priorities on. So if you have a time management issue, you're probably doing too much. And that's definitely, you know, that, that's my kryptonite is knowing because of being a solopreneur, it's knowing I don't have full-time staff all around me that I can delegate this and that to. So that's the challenge there is that time management piece, the prioritizing piece making sure there's enough of me to go around. Cool. And the next time we speak, um, like in about, let's say a year in two months, <laughs> what would be the thing Random. that you wish yourself? Well, I, one of the things that I've been working on for some time is a digital product. So I'm hoping by then that that digital product is out there. And I've really been late to the game on this, but as I tell my clients, you're never too late for, for digital and social. So uh, I won't give myself any excuses, but that is obviously the number one thing. Number two thing is I really enjoyed, this was my fourth book that I wrote, The Age of Influence. It had been seven years since my last book. So I really enjoyed not just the book writing process, but the ability that the book as a business card gives me to build relationships. And it's a really powerful thing in the business world. So I'm actually already thinking about my next book which it would be awesome a year and two months from now. Um, and it's going to be influenced by what we're going through with coronavirus and everything. So I think it's going to be very, very relevant for the times. And really, just as I said, we're a mixture of chemistry. I found that working with clients, we have all these different elements that we need to work together 
to really do our best in digital. You know, we have content, we have social media, we have, we have influence, um, there's technology. So the more and more I think about it, the more and more excited. So I'm looking to build a digital product and the experience from building that is actually going to help me write this book better by providing more case studies. So that's sort of my next thing for the next 14 months is I hope that I will be able to evolve to the point where this program is a successful launch. I have happy customers and I am actually able to publish this book about it and the book makes waves. Wow. So uh, we wish that you actually achieve that. And where Thank can you. people find you online if they want to hire you or, you know, see if they're a fit uh, for your consulting services or for your agency? Sure. So my name is Neil Schaefer. There's a lot of Schaefer's out there and there's a lot of Neil's out there. So it's N-E-A-L-S-C-H-A-F-F-E-R. I'm sure you have a link in the notes, but regardless. Uh, so I'm, I'm neilschafer.com. I'm Neil Schaefer on any social network. Yes, my, uh, my daughter in high school last night was asking if she could have a Snapchat account and I showed her my account. So yes, I am on Snapchat and TikTok, although I don't really frequent them uh, that often. Um, and I also have my own podcast called Maximize Your Social Influence. If you're interested in this concept of, of digital influence and how it relates to sales and marketing, check that out. And my book, The Age of Influence is available uh, online and at bookstores everywhere. Amazing. All right. So thank you so much for your time. And we'll speak again in the 21st of September, 2021. <laughs> I am looking forward to that, my friend. It's been fun. I hope that your audience finds this to be of value. I'm sure they will. Thank you so much. I hope we'll be in touch. Hey, thank you. Take care. Appreciate the you opportunity. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Real Life Superpowers Superpowers.